0: Welcome to Turn on Earth on Dublin Digital Radio. For this end of the year episode, I'm gonna look at a review of the people's struggles around the world over the last year. Bring it back to the struggle here in Ireland, try and link it all together. Obviously, a lot happens in a year, and 2023 was a particularly significant one, at least for the struggles I've been paying attention to. So, the global capitalist system is in a period of acute crisis. Of course, the capitalist system is inherently unstable. Crisis is built into it. But this moment we're living through is particularly intense. Several large banks collapsed in the USA at the beginning of last year, 2023, which has further intensified the global economic crisis that followed on from the COVID pandemic. Uh, China is steadily taken over from the US as the strongest economy in the world, and they are forming a new economic bloc around themselves, exemplified by BRICS, the BRICS countries, which represents a challenge to the US-led capitalist system, the IMF and the World Bank, etc. Although China has allowed capitalism to take hold again since the revolutionary period ended towards the end of the 70s. Their economy remains on more of a socialist basis and represents a qualitatively different way of doing things to the Western model. They're working in closer partnership with Russia, who aren't socialist, but who have more of a nationalist orientation than the NATO countries. So they also are a threat to global capitalist hegemony, to American hegemony. Many analysts believe that we're moving towards a multipolar world, where the great powers are on more of an equal footing. This is not a revolutionary change, the new economic order that's formed is still essentially capitalistic, but the fact that US hegemony is being challenged in such a serious way, uh, many countries are de-dollarizing. it indicates a fundamental shift in the balance of power. The dollar has been the dominant currency for the last century, most international trade is carried out using dollars, uh, many currencies are valued in relation to the dollar, and all this is changing, so the US is losing its linchpin, the, the linchpin of its global power this brings with it many opportunities for people's movements to grow in strength but it also makes things more dangerous as the great powers compete for resources and fields of influence it might be optimistic to say that the entire imperialist system is weakening certainly the american the western the nato side is weakening but overall it's becoming more fluid the stranglehold that the usa has had on the rest of the world for the last three decades or well realistically since the end of the second world war is starting to loosen and in the resulting panic they're desperately lashing out at all perceived enemies. They're building up their forces surrounding China, they're continuously funding a dead-end war in Ukraine where the front line hasn't shifted one inch all year, despite thousands upon thousands of deaths. And as of the last few months, they're gleefully funding the attempted eradication of the Palestinian people. So there, are two of the fields of struggle I'll be looking at over the last year. As well as that, it's been a record-breaking year for migrant deaths in the Mediterranean, so I'll be looking at the Mediterranean as a point of struggle, as a point of imperialist violence. It's been a record-breaking year also for extreme weather events, the results of accelerating climate change. This crisis in imperialism, it's creating opportunities for decolonial struggle, as well as making things more dangerous. Uh, It's also creating those opportunities for oppressed nations to break out. We look at the Sahel region, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, who are kicking the French out. And we finish off here in Ireland looking at how things have developed here over the last year. You could say there's a relationship between the burgeoning decolonial movements, the struggle of the left globally, especially in the global south, and the kind of entrenchment and spread of fascism in Europe. You see a number of far-right parties coming into positions of power throughout Europe, and here in Ireland there's a growing far-right. They're not very plausible, not very many people take them seriously, but they are having an effect on what's considered to be acceptable discourse and they're affecting policy, I suppose, in that they're pushing centre-right politicians to the right, the likes of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the rural independents, they're being pushed further to the right. And they're very successfully spreading and kind of normalizing racist rhetoric, scaremongering around migrants, milit- all this stuff about military age men etc. So while they may not get traction themselves, these far-right parties and agitators beyond a small hardcore group of supporters, they are pushing things further to the right generally. These developments, from my perspective, make it very clear that liberalism and fascism are, two, are the two pillars of capitalism, the two foundation stones. Liberalism is capitalism at peace. Fascism is capitalism at war. And these two pillars are always active at the same time in different parts of the world. The shield of liberalism and the sword of fascism. Where they're deployed will change when needed and what we're seeing is the capitalist system, the inherent instabilities that are fundamental to the capitalist system are really, really sharpening over the last couple of years and over the last year. In response, the central powers are becoming more oppressive and more repressive. More oppressive abroad and more repressive at home. It's important for us to have an idea of how the world's situation is shaping up, as complicated as it is, We'll never have a totally accurate picture of such a complex web of interlinked processes. Uh, but to understand our situation here at home, it'll help to have an idea of how things are developing globally as much as we can. So for me, like most as I'm sure the main event that jumps out over the last year is the escalation of violence in Palestine. The ongoing 75 year long occupation of Palestine by the Zionist colonial project, the State of Israel, has been getting more news coverage than usual due to the escalation in early October. On October 7th, a broad front of Palestinian resistance groups consisting of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, uh, the Lion's Den, Mujahideen and other smaller groups, broke out of their open-air prison and attacked Israeli positions near the Gaza fence. This is a very ideologically diverse coalition of groups, but what binds them is the ultimate goal of liberating Palestine from Zionist occupation. The mainstream media here in Ireland and in the English-speaking world frames this as a war between Hamas and Israel, characterising Hamas as an Islamist terrorist group and Israel as a sovereign state defending itself. The reality of course is that Palestine has been violently occupied by Israel since 1948. The media reported the October 7th attacks as attacks on innocent civilians. The reality is that the settlements are populated by Zionist settlers who are armed and who are active players in the ongoing occupation. Israel is a militarised society in which all citizens are required to the military service and after their required term is finished, most of them remain as army reservists to be called up when needed. The media ran a series of sensationalist stories about mass rapes, beheaded babies and the wanton slaughter of civilians. Now, over three months later, the Israeli police are unable to find any sexual assault victims and the IDF itself admitted that there's no evidence that Hamas beheaded any babies. And most of the deaths on October 7th with military personnel and there's numerous eyewitness accounts stating that it was IDF tanks and helicopters that were responsible for most of the settler deaths it's alleged that the IDF have a policy of killing their own people uh, rather than letting them be taken hostage more on that later the BBC published an article on their website at the start of December containing extremely horrific and graphic descriptions of rape, murder and even necrophilia by Hamas militants and what was their source? Anonymous sources in the Israeli military. As I said, there have been no eyewitness accounts, no families of victims or victims themselves coming forward on record, no credible evidence at all. Several workers and reporters resigned from the BBC after the article was published in protest over its lack of journalistic ethics and its lack of credibility. So far from being an unprovoked attack, as the media here insist on system portraying it, when we look back over the year, we can see that October the 7th was a response to ongoing Israeli violence going back decades to the foundation of the state, which was literally built on the ruins of Palestinian villages. What sticks out this year is just how often Israel bombed Palestinians before October, and the escalation in settler violence. By August, the UN had recorded 591 settler attacks in the first half of the year, showing an increase, a year-on-year increase, in attacks and casualties. To understand this escalation, we need to look at the makeup of the Israeli state. There were elections in late 2022, Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was re-elected despite being up in court on corruption charges in what many consider a sham election. Um, Although his party didn't return enough members to form a government of their own so they needed to rely on far-right parties to prop them up including Jewish Power and the National Religious Party, Religious Zionism. Representatives of these parties took key positions in the government like Itamar Ben-Gavir of Jewish Power who is the Minister for National Security and Bezalel Smutrich of Religious Zionism who is Minister for Finance. Both were born and raised in illegal Israeli settlements. Smutrich comes from the occupied Golan Heights in Syria and currently lives in the West Bank in an illegally built settlement. So the government, it's in character, it's a far right government. These are not fringe politicians. These are politicians that occupy uh, very important positions in the government. And uh, they've been growing in popularity since October the 7th. Inside Israeli-held territory, society is sharply divided. Uh, Hundreds of thousands were taken to the streets earlier in the year to protest against judicial reforms. Uh, The government basically trying to undermine the autonomy of the courts to do away with the separation of court and government, which is an important pillar of democracy. Uh, The year opened with an escalation in settler attacks on Palestinians. One of the first things the new government did was expand gun license laws for settlers, and throughout the year, Then they encouraged and actively took part in the expansion of illegal settlements, which makes sense when you understand that these leading government ministers are themselves settlers. There was a huge escalation in settler attacks and anti-Palestinian pogroms throughout the year, in particular in the village of uh, Huara, which Smutrich said should be completely destroyed. Some of the pogroms lasted for over five days. Ben Gvir, in the summertime, put a call out to all settlers, telling them that the state was behind them 100% and that they should go out and take as much land as they can, go to the hills, settle, they were told. The government announced plans then to expand the number of Israeli settlers in the West Bank to 1 million and approved construction of 12,000 new settlements. Dozens of villages were totally cleared of Palestinians. Ben-Gavir explicitly called for settlers to kill Palestinians in their thousands and made frequent statements that his rights and the rights of Jews in general are simply greater and more important than the rights of Arabs. They make no effort to hide, hide their agenda, which is ethnic cleansing. A prime example being just two days before Al-Aqsa flood, on the 5th of October, Ben-Gavir led a settler attack on the old city of Hebron. More than 200 Palestinians have been killed by the middle of the year, the highest number since 2018, and the highest number of casualties overall since 2014. Almost a quarter of them were kids, such as Mohammed Haitham al-Tamimi, a two-year-old boy who was killed in the village of Nabi Sela by an IDF soldier who shot him through the head from the safety of his watchtower. It's important to note on the subject of the IDF that along with the increase in settler attacks, Zionist paramilitary attacks, there was no shortage of official IDF attacks either. In January, they bombed a convoy of aid trucks in Syria. Um, The next month, February, they bombed Syria again. This is the same month, mind you, that Syria and Turkey were hit by two devastating earthquakes. Uh, So the Israelis decided they would help by dropping some bombs on them. Uh, I'll get into that a bit more later. But there was a notable difference in the world's response to the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Turkey, being a member of NATO, uh, was able to access aid, whereas Syria, as an enemy of the U.S. and the NATO alliance, their prior state in the eyes of the so-called civilized West, much like North Korea or Cuba, um, I know several fundraisers in Dublin and uh, clothing, desi- clothing drives for the earthquakes in Turkey, with no mention of Syria. Um, but yeah, the IDF bombed Syria while all this was happening, uh, and the U.S. imposed sanctions blocked aid from getting through as well. But also in Turkey, Israel, while they were bombing Syria, they did send teams of emergency responders to Turkey to help rescue efforts which was a lot nicer than dropping bombs. But but even there they couldn't help themselves and some of their teams were caught stealing scrolls from a destroyed museum. <laughs> um, on the subject of Turkey just briefly as well, it's important to note that around the time uh, the Palestinians relaunched their uh, resistance efforts, uh, Turkey began a bombing campaign of its own on civilian areas in northeast Syria and the southern part of Turkey uh, targeting Kurdish uh, Kurdish-held areas. Similar to the dynamic of Israel, Palestine, Turkey has a, a very large army, a very advanced air force, and they're fighting basically guerrilla forces, mainly targeting civilians. Um, the Kurds, uh, they, there's, there's lots of differences in the political situation, but the Kurds and the Palestinians both were dispossessed by the colonial carve-up pre-World War One, um, and similarly have been struggling for self-determination ever since. Um, and Turkey has been has been getting away with this largely because they're they're a member of NATO they've also been um, kind of showboating as defenders of the Palestinians and backing the South Africa's court case in The Hague while at the same time carrying out basically analogous uh, attacks themselves not on the same scale but um, just like Israel by bombing civilian infrastructure and killing innocent people but back to Palestine there was an increase uh, in IDF and settler violence in the build up to Ramadan um, more incursions on the al Mosque and then the summer saw a huge increase in air raids including the biggest one in over 20 years 70 people were killed in a refugee camp uh, they bombed all the roads in and out trapping people inside they also raided a public hospital in Janin a sign of what was to come later in the year in Gaza where they repeatedly bombed hospitals and then bragged about it while also denying that it was them um, Israel employs armies of online propagandists to implement Hasbro, their method of disinformation aiming to complicate the narrative and sow enough confusion to make people doubt the reality of the situation but any doubts about Israel's violence against Palestinian civilians can be cast aside once you know about their explicit policies I referenced this earlier uh, the Hannibal Directive uh, supposedly that directive doesn't exist officially anymore um, but that essentially says that it's, it's better to kill their own people then allowed them to be taken hostage um, and also the Dahiya Doctrine which essentially justifies the bombing of civilian areas if uh, there's a so-called quote-unquote terrorist there. Uh, so yeah, Google the Dahiya Doctrine and the Hannibal Directive for more information on that. Uh, the violence throughout this year didn't go unnoticed. Uh, unions, Palestinian unions organised strikes throughout the West Bank while the Lions Den and the Janin Brigades two of the more recently formed resistance groups escalated their activities in response to the IDF and settler violence the West Bank is governed by the Palestinian Authority who are largely regarded as a comprador, lapdog laptop government who do nothing to protect their people. Hence the necessity of these armed resistance groups to protect themselves and their neighbourhoods. Uh, we also saw an escalation in solidarity activism throughout the year. In particular, Palestine action in the UK have been doing great work targeting and shutting down factories belonging to Elbit Systems, an Israeli arms manufacturer. Um, and of course, since October 7th, we've seen a huge escal- escalation in Palestine solidarity actions. Just the other day, 100,000 people marched through Dublin um, and new groups have formed over the last few months such as uh, Action for Palestine and Sears in Palestine. Uh, follow them all on social media to see how you can get involved with that. I don't want to spend too much longer on Palestine. Uh, there's a lot of other ground to cover, but I suppose it was necessary to look at that in some detail because what happens in Palestine is important. It's important in and of itself, but it's also vitally important for the rest of us. Um, Palestine is the spear tip of anti-imperial resistance all in the world. The resistance in Palestine understand this, Um, Hamas state that their enemy is not the Jewish people but the Zionist project on their land and their NATO allies. The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine goes a step further, identifying their main enemy as the global imperial system, which maintains Israel as its outpost, its aircraft carrier in the Middle East. As Joe Biden said himself, if Israel didn't exist, the West would have to create an Israel to look after their interests. And we're all ultimately fighting against that same system and authorities in Europe and America understand it as well, which is why they've been clamping down so hard on Palestinian solidarity groups. Laws have been passed in the US and Germany, banning pro-Palestine chants and the flag. Uh, in December, a number of homes were raided of members of the activist group Zora due to their public statements in support of the PFLP. Uh, we've seen similar oppression here at home um, of anti-imperialist action. More on that later with uh, the cops raided homes of AIA activists early in the year. Uh, And also, just recently, an activist from Action for Palestine was arrested in a dawn raid on their home. Um, More on the Irish state and their repressive measures at the end of the episode. Uh, But what's obviously the most significant solidarity action has been taking place in neighbouring countries, in particular Lebanon and Yemen. Uh, In Lebanon, the militant group Hezbollah have been engaging, not exactly a full-on war with the IDF, but they've been engaging the IDF here and there along Israel's northern border which is really important because it's keeping them occupied and giving some much-needed relief to their comrades in Palestine. Um, and of course, uh, in Yemen, the Ansar Allah or Houthi movement, uh, they've been occupying uh, and blocking Israeli and Western warships and preventing Israeli ships from passing through the strait. And it's this that has led to more direct intervention by the United States. And it's telling that it took economic damage to prevent an, preventing an oil tanker in particular from being shipped. Um, it's telling that it took that for the United States to step in and for Rishi Sunak the Prime Minister of Great Britain, to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. He had me- made no mention of a ceasefire up until the Houthis held up some oil tankers for ransom. Um, and that speaks volumes about where the priorities lie. Like Over 20,000, pr- realistically more than 30,000 people now have been killed. Um, but as soon as some economic threat was made, it's like, oh no, it's time to end this now. Um, so that's developed quite significantly over the last couple of months. The US uh, started Operation Prosperity Guardian, to send ships into the Mediterranean and of course in the last week the US and the UK with a number of other countries allied to them have started bombing Yemen Um, which again Israel can kill 30,000 people without any repercussions Uh, Ansar Allah hold up a couple of ships and to get bombed but crucially in the last month uh, France Spain and Italy have all removed themselves from the command structure Um, ...of that operation, which is a very significant development. Uh, So while things are extremely grim, we can see that the NATO imperialist camp is not entirely unified... ...and the American subjugation of the European continent is not as solid, maybe, as it once was. So, further west, in the Mediterranean, it's been a significant year for migrant deaths... ...as migrant deaths reached a five-year high. There's people going missing very regularly. The most notable instance off the coast of Greece uh, back in June I think it was a fishing boat carrying uh, migrants capsized and over 750 people died there has been well over two and a half thousand migrants killed in the Mediterranean and that there just confirmed deaths realistically the numbers probably a lot higher um, in response to that boat capsizing there were huge protests throughout Europe but particularly in Athens uh, particularly strong in Athens as people correctly identified the Greek state their Coast Guard as responsible for the deaths A forensic investigation came to the conclusion that the the Coast Guard were responsible and it's well documented that European Coast Guards actively endanger migrant boats by deliberately capsizing them in an effort to drive them back and make people too afraid to attempt the crossing. Despite what the far-right claim here in Ireland and abroad, it is the explicit policy of the EU to prevent migrants from reaching the shores of the continent and they carry out these policies using the security agency Frontex in collaboration with the Italian, Greek and Spanish Coast Guards. Uh, They also essentially set up the Libyan Coast Guard and have been funding the oppressive Libyan government this year to the tune of 4.5 million to contain migrants. Libya was once a stable and prosperous country until a coalition of NATO forces invaded in 2011 and destabilised the place. It's been a basket case ever since. Uh, Gaddafi, he's painted here in the West as being a bit of a madman, but the reasons for his deposition was that he was a a pan-Africanist and a socialist who wanted to keep Africa independent of its former colonisers. And that that kind of self-respect and self-reliance just can't be tolerated by the capitalist system um but yeah you didn't hear much about these migrants dying over 750 men women and children when the boat capsized back in june didn't get a whole lot of coverage in the media it happened around the same time though that five rich dickheads drowned in that submarine uh, oh sorry not a submarine it was a, a, a th- th- submersible, a submersible uh, the titan submersible developed by ocean gate it was this I don't know, adventurer pod thing controlled by a PlayStation controller it had to be welded shut from the outside and imploded uh, on the way down to look at the Titanic. I have very little sympathy for the people who paid a quarter of a million dollars to take part in the expedition, and I have absolutely no sympathy for Stockton Rush, the CEO of Oceangate who was piloting the thing. Uh, I just think it's very funny that he died in such silly circumstances. If you feel uncomfortable, laughing about this if you're one of those people who need to feel ethically sound while mocking the dead uh, know that stockton Rush's first big boy job was working for mcdonald douglas on the f-15 program um so he developed fighter jets the f-15s which are currently being used by the us to bomb yemen and by the israeli air force to bomb gaza so yeah fuck him i'm glad he's dead couldn't have happened to a nicer fella but back to the mediterranean for now uh, the capitalist system is what's driving migration all over the world in more concrete terms imperialist institutions like the imf and the world bank keep developing countries artificially poor they do it to ireland they do it to other european countries like spain and greece they do it to countries all over africa and the global south keep them in debt and ensure that they can't develop their own industry so they just exist as resource extraction zones sacrifice zones for international capital uh, this is why the development of the BRIC system is so significant and why china's increasing influence is such a threat but on top of that manufactured economic scarcity the very same process of industrialisation that relies on resources extracted from the Global South is also causing the twin threats of biodiversity loss and climate change, which is disproportionately affecting the Global South. And indeed, this has yet been another record-breaking year for extreme weather events. All around the Mediterranean, both in North Africa and Southern Europe, the summer was marked by insane wildfires and flash flooding. In Italy, we had wildfires in the South while there was crazy storms going on in the North, and it's been very very difficult for local fire brigades to deal with this because due to austerity measures in Europe governments like I said are swinging to the right they're neoliberal governments with a neoliberal economic outlook which basically means minimizing government as much as possible minimizing spending so they're cutting public services like the fire brigade and health services they can always manage to find funding for border security though it's interesting but uh, in Greece for example the fire brigade budget has been cut by something like 20% over the last five years so at a time when wildfires are under the increase, you can see how that's going to cause them serious problems, and it has been. Um, European countries like Spain, uh, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Ireland, they were hit particularly hard by the, the recession a number of years ago, the 2008 economic crash. And as a result, I've seen harsher, austerity measures than other parts of Europe. Not to mention North Africa, countries like Algeria, Libya, as you said, already completely battered by imperialism. And then they've got this bullshit to deal with on top of that. As well as the wildfires, we see flash flooding. Libya, in particular, was hit very badly by flash flooding. Um, The EU gave them half a million in aid for that, compared to the four and a half million they gave them for containing migrants, which shows you where the priorities lie. Um, Even though the problems they're facing are largely caused by European industrialisation extractivism. But yeah, in terms of aid, they were largely left to deal with that themselves. And of course, there was huge wildfires in Hawaii, which uh, killed thousands of people and went largely unaided by the the government of the united states who essentially just ignored the problem uh, on the subject of extreme weather uh, at the beginning of the year of course there was two huge earthquakes in turkey and syria and like i said earlier the way that was dealt with is again illustrative of this global system of imperialism turkey who are a nato country were able to access aid whereas syrian uh, Turkey's an incredibly oppressive state, it's a right-wing state But because they're in NATO, the Western media deals with them in a very, very favourably Whereas Syria are like this rogue state, this evil state uh, They're the bad guys Assad is an evil dictator I mean, I've got a lot of issues with the government of Assad um, They're, you know I think it's probably overstated how undemocratic it is uh, I do believe there's many issues with it uh, and, But nevertheless, he does seem to have the support of the Syrian people uh, but he's in persona non grata on the world stage and syria is one of these prior states that are under heavy sanctions by the us and the nato countries they were unable to get aid due to that um as well like i said being bombed by israel at the same time israel occupies part of syria the golan heights and israel and turkey are essentially western allies in the region uh, it's in the west's interest to keep syria destabilized so that the west can access oil directly uh, the us are currently stealing oil from syria uh, it's been an ongoing pattern So the crisis in syria has been one of the main drivers of the escalating refugee crisis over the last decade or so you can see that that's intensified this year due to natural disasters driven by climate change driven by capitalistic industrialization and also by sanctions and political destabilization which is also coincidentally driven by the very same capitalist industrialists that are driving the climactic disruptions so it's a perfect storm brewing in syria we see it happening in other parts of the world as well particularly in africa like i mentioned earlier libya this year on top of the political destabilisation over the last decades due to NATO intervention that was compounded in the last year by extreme weather they were hammered by flash floods and just I don't when you say flash flood I think pe- people imagine the, the, the banks of a river bursting or just like or New York this is like wet mud like really like it's, it's sludge like fast moving sludge that sweeps away people and destroys buildings like it's really really extreme it's not just like when I don't know, Cork floods and houses have a few inches, I mean, that's bad, you know, when Cork City floods, it's bad, you know, it, 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 people's houses have a few inches of water in them wherever. whatever, but nobody dies, buildings don't get destroyed, whereas when we're talking about flash floods in Libya, we're talking about seas, rivers of mud coming hurtling through towns and cities, destroying the place completely, and I think over 15,000 people died as a result of these floods. Um, And like I said earlier, they received half a million in aid to deal with that compared to the four and a half million that their Coast Guard are getting to contain people. Libya is not the only country on the African continent that the EU is funding to contain migrants. Further south in Sudan, over 13,000 people have been killed and millions have been displaced throughout 2023 in an extremely violent conflict between two rival military factions. The Sudanese Armed Forces under General Al-Burhan, are fighting against the rapid support forces under General Hemeti. Both sides have been funded by the EU uh, and armed by Israel, in particular the RSF, uh, through the cartoon process, were given payments to contain migrants, um, much like much like the Libyan Coast Guard. They're also looking to normalise relations with Israel, who's who are one of their main weapon suppliers. They use Israeli light artillery and rifles. A bit of history is required to explain this situation. Essentially, Sudan seems to have only recently started looking th- into this, but... It seems to have been in a state of near constant civil war since it first gained independence in 1956, or nominal independence from Britain. The imperialist powers can't keep their hands off, though, due to the huge reserves of gold and oil contained in the region. Sudan can be viewed as another arena, another front of inter imperialist conflict, but it's a bit messier. As in this instance, we've got Russian mercenaries, Wagner, working alongside the factions that are linked to NATO, exercising control over the gold trade. The RSF, were once allies of the government, they grew out of militias that were used to put down rebellion in Darfur. They were also sent to Yemen to fight against Ansar Allah, I mentioned them earlier, the movement that's currently holding up Western trade in the Red Sea in solidarity with the Palestinian resistance. And they also provided military support to NATO in overthrowing Gaddafi uh, in Libya. Sudan was once accused of being a state sponsor of terror. Uh, the you know the for harboring Al Qaeda and all this back in the nineties uh, they were on the the United States keeps a list of so called state sponsors of terrorism uh, North Korea and Cuba are on it it's a total nonsense uh, definition it doesn't mean anything other than we they're enemies of the USA um, Bill Clinton uh, ordered the bombing of the only medical production facility in Sudan at the time claiming falsely claiming that it was a chemical weapons factory. Sudan were taken off that list in 2022 in exchange for helping uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates um, in, their, in their regional conflicts. And of course, they are all allies of the United States in the region. The current violence is in the context of growing unrest among the mass of Sudanese people. Since 2019, a protest movement has been growing. Uh, civilians formed resistance committees in protest against then-President Omar Bashir, who was eventually arrested by his own generals. The military then refused to hand over control to the civilians. At this point, the RSF and the Sudanese armed forces were working together towards the same aim, basically the maintenance of elite power. Uh, The military are intimately tied up with the capital system in Sudan. Many generals are uh, involved on the boards of various state enterprises and private corporations. Back in April of this year, a months-long sit-in protest outside military headquarters in the capital was violently dispersed by the army and the RSF, and then and now, as a result, the army and the RSF are fighting each other, essentially over who gets to control the flow of wealth from Sudan. The street-level resistance committees are unarmed, so they are at the mercy of these two military factions, who, as I said, are being financed by the US and their allies, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Israel. Neither faction has the support of the people, and it's the people who are suffering immensely due to this last year's escalation of violence. Last year saw a military coup in another African nation, to the west of Sudan, but this one builds upon a broad base of popular support. And this is what I really want to focus on, if we move to the west of Sudan, to the Sahel region. There's been a serious decolonial movement developing there over the last couple of years, and that's just, it's really escalated and coalesced this last year. Uh, I'll give a bit of a background first. So in Burkina Faso, towards the end of 2022, there was a number of military coups. Uh, There was like three coups in short space-time or something like that. but ultimately a a nationalist revolutionary bloc within the army calling itself the Patriotic Movement for Safeguard and Restoration led by a man called Ibrahim Traore finally managed to take and hold power and put in a temporary government the military are still de facto in charge uh, till they can achieve stability when this is talked about in the West it's largely talked about as just a straight up military coup which of course sets alarm bells ringing for most of us I'm sure it doesn't sound very good doesn't sound very democratic but what's important to understand is that they do have the broad support of the people in Burkina Faso Traore and the faction that have taken over are revolutionaries. They're nationalists, uh, left-wing nationalists, and nationalism in this context is a progressive force because what we're talking about here is a former French colony finally kicking out the last remnants of the French colonial administration that still holds sway in Africa. So much of Africa was controlled by France. um, uh, It was called Frank-Afrique. All those countries in the Sahel region like Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, the Ivory Coast, Senegal... um, some of them are still well up until this year were still largely governed by pro-french corrupt politicians uh, and going further back in the history there burkina faso Traoré is heavily influenced by thomas Sankara, who was a marxist revolutionary back in the late 70s early 80s who again led, led a successful military coup against the french colonial administration and kicked them out and um, put him put in place a people's government he was a socialist revolutionary he was known as the shea of africa and um, he was famous for planting hundreds of trees uh, for limiting politicians' salaries, limited his own salary to the, to the standard industrial wage. Uplifted the people, basically. It was under his leadership that the name Burkina Faso actually came from. Uh, that country used to be known as the Upper Volta. Um, but under Sankara's leadership, it became known as Burkina Faso, which means the land of the upright man. That's what the country is still known as today. He was unfortunately assassinated by his former comrade, uh, Blaise Compare, who then ruled Burkina Faso as a neoliberal hellhole for several decades. Um, uh, he was eventually overthrown, deposed, and fled to the Ivory Coast. I think he has been put on trial now, at last, for the murder of Sankara. Uh, but Traore, you can see, has modelled himself largely on Sankara. Sankara is still a huge figure in Burkina Faso, um, and that, that, that revolutionary thread that he put in motion is being carried out today um, by by the current government. I don't think they're Marxists, they don't call themselves Marxists like Sankara did, but they are revolutionary nationalists, and this has had kind of a, a domino effect in the region. Um, neighboring countries mali have gone through similar processes and now finally this year niger in the summertime had a nationalist coup of its own and kicked out the french administration like burkina faso all this coup was carried out by the military it happened in the context of a broad mass movement against french colonialism from the bottom up and the way that's been playing out has been very very interesting the french are not going quietly i think it was the guy before was president Bazoum was his name he was deposed arrested by his own presidential guard at the same time, protests erupted throughout Niger. The French embassy was surrounded by protesters. Um, France threatened the coup with military intervention. Uh, not themselves, but through an organisation called ECOWAS, which is the Economic Alliance of West African States, or something like that. Uh, um, they're a largely pro-colonial grouping. Um, Nigeria, in particular, were threatening military intervention. They're probably the strongest country in that grouping. And the Fr- France and the US were putting a lot of pressure on the coup leadership. Um, the reason for this is not just pride on the part of France. Um, it's because of the... the, the un, like, Europe's wealth is largely based on the, the theft of resources from Africa. Um, something like a quarter of the EU's uranium comes from Niger. Uh, the main mining company, supposedly the national mining, mining company, uh, is mostly French-owned. So while we're supposedly living in a post-colonial world, we can see that colonial relations uh, very much still exist. Um, while this coup was happening, while the military were seizing power, there was thousands and thousands of people on the streets of Niamey, the capital city, demanding the withdrawal of western troops and supporting the coup. We need to understand that this is a popular movement supported by the people because they understand that their country is being exploited by European colonialism, by French colonialism, and they can see that this will improve their conditions. So while it's technically correct to describe it as a military coup, we have to understand that it's a popular uprising as well. Shortly after the coup, ECOWAS, the French puppets in the region, officially announced an invasion date uh, that they were going to militarily intervene in Niger. Um, but around this time as well, Niger, along with Burkina Faso and Mali, announced the formation of the Alliance of Sahelian States. So those three countries together, uh, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, they comprise about 50% of what used to be ECOWAS territory. These were all once ECOWAS countries. Um, so 50% of that, that territory is now aligned closely together, led by national nationalist governments that are anti colonial and anti imperialist in character. So this is huge. Um, France at that point were still refusing to withdraw their ambassador. Uh, the protests were growing and growing. The the French embassy was eventually firebombed by protesters. Macron in his arrogance had he had toured Africa earlier in the year and was met with protests every step of the air step of the way. Um, he was kept maintaining that these countries need France, that they'd fall apart without France. But what he really means of course, as I mentioned with the uranium is that France needs these countries. France's economy is based on colonial exploitation, so they're really panicking. Um, if if these countries can successfully take control of their own natural resources, they can charge more for them. They can get what they deserve and they can develop their own industries and create jobs for their own people. Uh, and that's a threat to the French because they'll have to pay a fair price for the resources to get from these countries, or they might have to pay an even greater price for uh, buying developed commodities rather than just buying pure resources from them um, so by September the, the French still were ig- ignoring the demands of the government uh, so in response the the they wouldn't remove their ambassador. so the Nigerian government uh, stripped them of diplomatic privilege and ordered the police to expel them from the country uh, protesters breached the embassy gates like I said firebombed the embassy elsewhere in the region Senegal uh, which is currently uh, still under a pro French government, Senegal. It's a pro, it's a, a French lapdog government, basically. Um, the president is Macky Sall, I think. Uh, they ba- banned their opposition party. Um, the opposition leader, Ousmane Sanko, was imprisoned, and in response to that, there was huge, huge protests against the government, uh, massive turnouts. The state responded oppressively, killed several dozen people. So the, 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 these protests were. Like I said, they were sparked by the arrests of the opposition leader and the the banning of the opposition parties. So there were anti-government, anti-French protests. Um, They continued to grow in intensity throughout the year and grew again in response to the events in Niger. So all these movements are starting to knit together. There was also tensions in Chad, which I think is to the east of Niger. A French soldier there shot a Chadian soldier dead at point-blank range. uh, And the Chad army had to prevent protesters from storming the French base. We also see escalating protests in other parts of the continent, notably in Kenya. There were huge protests against inflation. Uh, The protesters displayed a high level of class consciousness and understanding that colonialism has not ended, that poverty is man-made. Amidst these protests, there was a particularly intense one around a British army base in the region uh, due to cases of sexual violence. Um, The President, Ruto, he's very friendly to the United States and the IMF, signed a huge $1 billion IMF deal uh, and in exchange for that the government have to stop subsidising basic goods. Uh, it's a common thing with the IMF, they'll give a loan to a country in an exchange, the country has to do away with social welfare programmes, uh, anything that helps their people essentially, uh, cut back on spending, austerity measures, uh, so it plunges their people further into poverty. They're currently in debt to the tune of about 60 or 70% of their GDP. Um, they banned these protests, um, but of course the protests kept building in spite of that. There's big protests in Uganda as well against European oil companies and huge protests in the Congo, uh, anti-UN protests in particular, again around sexual violence. Uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo has the biggest number of reported sexual violence by UN troops in the region. So there was huge anti-UN protests there demanding the withdrawal of troops. So you can see there's a movement across the continent to decolonize. It's particularly strong in the Sahel region, but it's happening across the continent. Uh, strongly recommend keeping an eye on that. It's going to have huge repercussions for the rest of the world. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that progresses this year I'd strongly recommend looking into the All African People Re- People's Revolutionary Party for updates on this uh, there's a podcast called Find the Signal uh, worth listening to um, and an organisation in Burkina Faso called Burkina Books who um, the, the, the Thomas and Cara Centre uh, they're a political education project that uh, do a lot of updates on this so as of December uh, that invasion that EcoWash threatened still hasn't materialised and um, but niger has been battered by sanctions uh, particularly by nigeria who supplies 70 percent of niger's electricity they're withholding that so they are struggling but they remain strong and as of the 19th of december the un finally recognized the new nigerian government as the legitimate government of niger Um, and this year 2024 is going to be the first year without french troops in niger since the i can't remember the exact year but it's the late 1800s sometimes so it's Really huge changes happening in that region, and that, in combination with the the newly formed alliance of Sahelian states, has really strengthened that decolonial, anti-imperialist position in the Sahel region and in Africa more broadly. And because it's really important to understand that all of these groups understand themselves as Pan-Africanists. They're nationalists, but they all they're also they uh, they have a Pan-Africanist ideology. So they, as far as they're concerned, they they, they want to work towards developing a United States of Africa that can uh, strengthen itself and protect its people and benefit from its own natural resources instead of just allowing them to be robbed by Europe as they have been uh, ever since colonialism started. So, in direct relationship to that strengthening of anti-imperial nationalist government uh, in the former Franc-Afrique, the former French colonies, France itself is going through a period of intense crisis. France, like much of continental Europe, uh, there was a wave of strike action all throughout the year. It was particularly sharp in France where hundreds of thousands took to the streets. They were protesting against pension reforms. Uh, over the summer then the struggle intensified due to the death of a young man a young Algerian man uh, he was 17 years old, a child really was killed by the police um, he hadn't committed any crime or anything like that it was just like a routine stop stop and search scenario and the cops killed him there was months of protests against that what was significant about this one was that it was caught on film so like a, a common refrain amongst the protesters was, was how many deaths happened that aren't caught on film um, so this was all happening at the same time as the, the crisis for them or their crisis of control in Africa and it came on top as, like I said, a, very, a year of, half a year of very intense strike and protest action by French workers. Uh, there was also strikes in the UK, throughout continental Europe. The uh, RMT militancy has been ongoing. There was huge walkouts at the start of the year. Uh, likewise in Spain, you know, walkouts and lock-ins of workers. Uh, but France in particular it has been very intense. Its, um, it's country has been in a period of general strike for a large part of the year. It saw some of the largest strikes since World War II. In response to these actions, the state has stepped up repression. Uh, We've also seen an increase of street-level fascism. Uh, Fascists were mobilising to protect the status quo, to protect the system, uh, to attack the protesters who were protesting the death of this young man. In general, throughout Europe, we're seeing a consolidation of fascist power. Um, Watching how Europe has developed over the last year, like I said earlier, the fact that liberalism and fascism are the two pillars of the capitalist system becomes really clear. You can see that in France. Macron's Liberal government are perfectly comfortable marching in lockstep with Marine Le Pen's National Front uh, and the street-level fascist movement that's continuously developing there and protecting the state. But all over Europe, the right, the far-right, uh, fascists essentially are coming into positions of power. We've got Gert Wilders in the Netherlands recently came into power. Um, alternative for Deutschland are becoming more popular in Germany. You can see how the German state anywhere dealing with Palestinian protesters banning the flag, banning certain chants same in england and of course in ukraine which is still fighting its endless war against the russian invasion which is at this point is a war of attrition uh, continues its clampdown down against left-wing and socialist activists for example the Kononov- Kononovich brothers of the communist party of ukraine have been under house arrest uh, for the last year they were in jail before that simply for being communist they haven't committed any crime so the governments like i said liberal governments are drifting to the, to the right and far right parties are gaining traction in Germany in particular like I mentioned uh, Alternative Alternative for Deutschland um, the new modern day fascist party cleaner image than the old guard but they're still just out and out fascists they've one of their politicians in particular uh, said she refused to celebrate the defeat of not Nazi Germany because she refused to celebrate the defeat of her own country so you can see there's an increased comfort among German politicians of celebrating their past you know that part of the past that you really shouldn't be celebrating and it sounds like a larger spectrum of the German public are now increasingly comfortable Uh, identifying with that past so there's an entrenchment of fascism not just in Germany it's generalised throughout Europe, the Netherlands, France and Ukraine Uh, and Ukraine is like like the knife edge of it. Ukraine of course is not an explicitly far-right government but similar to Israel the far-right occupy a position of strength within the government and the army you've got the Azov battalion the right sector been integrated into the national army they're the largest and strongest groupings and they exert heavy influence over the government. The Ukraine is a prime example of US influence in Europe. The war would have ended in 2022 if it wasn't for NATO interference. Boris Johnson was sent over to prevent peace talks. The front line, as I said earlier, has not budged all year, but over 2000 soldiers have lost their lives. These are mostly young, working class people who are dying on behalf of the capitalist class. It's a complete waste of life. The US explicitly say they're ready to fight until the last Ukrainian. It's not their people dying, but they are continuously funding the war effort, even though it's clear and it has been clear since earlier on that there's no hope of Ukraine pushing Russia back beyond its currently established front line. Russia has achieved what it set out to do, which was to take control of the Donbass and to maintain the land bridge to Crimea. Nobody's benefiting from the continuation of the war. The moral outrage that we saw in the Irish media at the start of 2022 has totally disappeared. But the death and destruction continues and nobody's winning except for the arms manufacturers. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael here at home are intent on doing away with Irish neutrality and Varadkar, in December, stated uh, that the government intend to double down on its support for Ukraine, which could, at some point, lead to uh, direct military support. The argument goes that Russia represents a threat to the rest of Europe. This claim is incredible in the face of reality, as America and their allies in the NATO alliance are endangering Europe to a far greater degree. The effects of sanctions on Russia have been negligible for Russia, as they are having no trouble finding markets for their gas, uh, European countries are blocked from buying Russian gas but Russia just sells it to India who then refine it and sell it onto Europe uh, so Russia are actually making more money now off their gas sales than they were before sanctions um, because before that they were locked into certain price agreements with European countries that's all gone now so they can sell it at whatever price they want um, so the sanctions have actually benefited Russia while harming Europe uh, kind of which suits the US down to the ground perfectly well they they, they don't want a, us you the US does not want a strong Europe they want a weak subjugated Europe that does their bidding um that's what this war is essentially about is two competing powers trying to maintain control and influence and fighting over potential markets that's what it comes down to the gas is a good example um the LNG platform which was proposed for the Shannon Estuary you might you'd have heard Johnny McGelliget of Safety before LNG talking about about that on this podcast recently Um, That was proposed to ship liquefied fracked gas from the United States so they can keep benefiting from their shale gas boom. A lot of the arguments we heard in favour of that project talked about security of supply, about energy security, about the need to get off Russian gas. The reality is that Ireland doesn't get any gas from Russia and changing our gas supply from the North Sea to the United States does not increase security of supply, it just makes us dependent on somebody else. But the argument does highlight what was really driving the project, which was the need of the USA to find markets for its gas exports. Even though that project was refused to plan based on the fact that it goes against government policy, the government have now stated their intention to buy a gas storage ship, Uh, so intent are they on being customers of the US. They also push the argument that it will lower our energy prices. Please remember electricity, heating and everything else are more expensive because the people at the top are skimming off more profit for themselves. That's what inflation is. Remember, Richard Wolf says this, Hammers this point home all the time. Inflation is increased profit. That's what causes inflation. The people at the top taking more money for themselves. It's that straightforward. Remember the ESB, along with all the major energy companies in the world, in 2023 reported record-breaking profits. And it's these profiteers who require the protection of capitalist government. So far from Russia representing a threat to us, NATO are the main culprits for sowing division and destruction all over the world. The same NATO that destroyed Libya, which is causing the outflow of migrants into Europe. The same NATO that destroyed so much of Iraq and West Asia. NATO endangered everyone by pushing Russia past its repeatedly stated red lines, by surrounding it with military bases after committing not to. NATO has expanded this last year in Europe with Finland joining in April, and Turkey finally relented during the summer and said they would allow Sweden to join. The price for membership for Sweden included committing to help Turkey by selling out Kurdish activists who claimed asylum in Sweden and to increase cooperation in Turkey's war against the Kurds which escalated in early November. We can speculate about what Russia would do if it had more power and there can be no doubt that the Russian state under Putin's leadership is repressive but we have to deal with the current reality. The Irish state is rowing in behind Ukraine doing the bidding of the USA, not because of a commitment to freedom and democracy or any notions like that, but because the state need to do what the USA tells it to do. doesn't dare dissent. If they had a genuine commitment to human rights and justice, they would at the very least back South Africa's case against Israel in the ICJ, but they won't. So it's this context, the Irish state being a vassal of NATO, that makes their attempt to erode our neutral status so dangerous. They are ideologically committed to supporting the US and the economic system they dominate so there's a real risk that Irish soldiers from our already small defence forces could be sent abroad to take part in imperialist wars. How many more lives would be thrown into the trenches of imperial warfare? We need to campaign for peace, for a ceasefire and for the return to diplomacy as soon as possible. I'm reading a book at the moment which covers the lead up to the First World War. Before the war, socialists all over Europe committed to revolution and claimed that if war broke out between the capitalist states, they would commit to organising the workers for the revolutionary overthrow of those states, that no working-class man would be forced to fire a weapon against another just because they're of different nationalities. Then, as soon as war broke out, the vast majority of socialist leaders driven by fear and national chauvinism instead backed their own capitalist governments and committed to recruiting for the war effort. Now was rare exceptions like James Connolly, Rosa Luxemburg and a few others, but many capitulated. Many used arguments about the rights of small countries, and painted certain countries as more democratic and more free than others. We heard all those arguments again in relation to Ukraine. That Ukraine and the NATO countries that back it are more freedom-loving and more democratic than Russia, more civilised. It's all nonsense. Neither the Russian state nor the Ukrainian state as they are represent the interests of the broad masses of people. One of the thousands killed in Ukraine last year was a friend of mine, not a close friend but someone I'd known through environmental campaigning and from being involved in housing activism, um, someone I looked up to really, uh, Finbar Kafferki was killed back in April, it still feels weird to acknowledge that out loud, I find it difficult to accept that, I won't see him again. he didn't go there to fight for any abstract notions of democracy and freedom or anything like that he he went to help people on the ground guided by his own principles and of course he died fighting alongside his comrades in an anarchist unit while helping to evacuate civilians from the town of Bakhmut uh, where his unit was attacked by Russian mortars I find this difficult to speak about because of how he died but I, I don't think that people should be going to fight in Ukraine regardless of what our personal political aims are Ultimately it's not a revolutionary war, it's a war between two corrupt capitalist states and behind that between two imperialist blocs. The dominant imperialist bloc led by the US and their NATO allies versus the burgeoning imperialism of Russia. There's no good guys versus bad guys narrative here. It's vital that we remember the main enemy is at home. Our oppressors sound like us, they don't speak Russian. And on a purely practical level, military science can be quite exact and it's quite clear that the war is not going to change in character anytime soon. Ukraine has fallen out of favour with the Western powers and it's it's going to come to peace talks eventually, so it'll be a lot better if it happens sooner rather than later. Rest in peace, Finbar. I, I couldn't look back over the year without mentioning that uh, Finbar was killed, but I'm, I'm having a hard time speaking about it, because I know if we had the chance to speak about the conflict in Ukraine, we, we probably would have butted heads over and I'm sad that we we never got the chance to argue over it because I know I would have learned a lot from the conversation. Any time I spoke with Finbar, I learned something. Uh, he was just the type of person. And I wouldn't be doing right by his memory to shy away from this difficult topic to, to avoid the hard conversation. The Irish state are making moves to erode Irish neutrality so they can increase their military cooperation with the corrupt and increasingly fascist Ukrainian state who they've already been training and aiding. I know Finbar wouldn't have supported this. He was a revolutionary activist and he understood that the struggle of the Ukrainian working class, the struggle of working people everywhere, the struggle for Irish national liberation and the struggle for Kurdish self-determination, which he also fought for, are all interlinked. All of these struggles are ongoing and it seems like they'll sharpen in the coming years. Along with all the pain and destruction that comes with intensifying crisis, there's also opportunity for revolutionary change. Every tumultuous period throughout history shows us this. The crisis in capitalism, the never-ending crises, what we call here at home the cost of living crisis, but which would be more accurately called the consequences of liberalism crisis, has been steadily sharpening since the crash of 2008. And I call it the consequences of liberalism crisis because these things don't happen by accident. As economist Richard Wolff points out, inflation is simply increased profit. The people who control the raw materials and the fundamental production of necessary items, they take greater profits for themselves, and indeed this year, Several energy companies all over the world have reported again record operating profits. Same with the uh, oil and gas companies. This has been happening year on year for the last number of years. Um, 2023 was yet another record-breaking year for company profits. As long as, for, as well as for extreme weather events, these two things kind of march in lockstep. The worse things get, the more companies make make money. Uh, here at home, it was a record year for the ESB, the Electricity Supply Board. Uh, they reported their highest profits in years. Uh, at the same time, families and individuals around the country are struggling to pay for the basic necessities, including electricity. And this, the ESB was once a state owned, uh, or was once a, a non profit uh, state owned company back in the 90s. Ireland had the cheapest electricity in Europe. We now have the fourth most expensive. Uh, it was a condition of joining the EU, of joining the Eurozone, that we had to liberalise our public services, including the ESB. And this is the end result of it. Uh, we have a totally liberalised. Uh, electricity supply system with a bunch of different so-called electricity suppliers that don't actually generate any of the electricity they just buy it off the ESB and other private suppliers and sell it back to the grid but the ESB still maintain all the infrastructure it's still publicly maintained by our tax money Uh, but now we pay through the nose for it and the now privatised company which was once not-for-profit is now reporting record profits this year so now that we're back in Ireland finally um, homeless figures this year climbed it was just over 11,000 at the start of the year they're now up over 13,000 they're the official figures so the real number is of course probably a lot higher Uh, rents and house prices continue to increase around the country while the availability of houses remains stagnant there just aren't any there's no public housing being built very little Um, the developers seem keen on building office blocks that nobody needs Uh, I spoke to one man a while ago an electrician who was at that time working on an office block right next to one he had just finished working on which was still empty building an empty uh, building an office block next to an empty one they're both probably going to remain empty once that one's finished as well um, there wasn't a single office in the other one rented out there's no demand for these places I don't understand how they're getting built uh, corruption is the only answer I can come to but there's an extreme lack of housing that has not been been addressed by the government anyway. at the state the government who are still pouring millions into this maternity hospital which is in a part of Dublin that nobody can afford to live in I don't know where their staff are going to live once it is built it's costing the state Insane amounts of money. The consequence of liberalism crisis, the crisis of capitalism all over the world. Its consequences here in Ireland is that tensions among people, they're, they're at a height that I haven't seen before in my lifetime. Um, and in this, it's in this scenario that, that the right are starting to gain some traction among, uh, among communities on the ground here. The year started out with uh, protests against migrant accommodation, emergency accommodation for migrants throughout Dublin, in particular in East Wall. Um, the end of 22 that was happening beginning of 2023 Uh, in Ashtown a suburb of Dublin a homeless encampment was attacked by men with dogs and hurleys and uh, sticks Uh, there was around eight people sleeping there um, from different parts of from the world some European some from further afield they had been staying there in this like little wooded area near some housing estates peacefully for months until this uptick in in far-right protests led to this vigilante group kicking them out uh, the results are in the same time, a group of 100 men marched through Finglas to the office of Desi Ellis, a local Sinn Féin politician. And it's important to mention that the, these groups, when they do target politicians, they're, they target left-wing politicians who have never actually been in government. Desi Ellis is a Sinn Féin politician. Sinn Féin have never been in government in the South. Um, he, he, he was an elected councillor, possibly an elected TD as well, I'm not sure, but he's never been in the government. Likewise, they're holding protests outside of Paul Murphy's house, Who is never, none of the policies that the government have put in place. Uh, th- these left-wing politicians aren't responsible for that at all. Um, but it's that's a typical characteristic of far-right movements. They target left-wing politicians, the scapegoat migrants uh, and other minority groups, trans people, uh, members of the uh, LGBT community. So yeah, what kicked those protests off was the, around East Wall there was an old ESB building that was going to be used to house asylum seekers. Huge protests against that initially I think led by local people and then capitalised on by right wing sort of like online activists talking heads Um, so there there are some genuine enough concerns in these areas like it's not a a, a coincidence that these protests start in working class areas that are really under resourced areas that don't have proper infrastructure already Um, the the slogan they use Ireland is full is used because from their perspective often it is It makes sense that there will be tensions, because these are areas that are already very deprived of basic infrastructure, concerns around the areas being underserviced, and if it makes sense, you're adding more people to the mix, so people are going to be scared that that's going to make conditions worse for everybody. This is fairly basic stuff. But beyond that, a number of other slogans started to emerge, in particular a moral panic around so-called military-aged men. Uh, There was a lot of focus on this being military-aged men, of people being unvetted, which isn't true. Um, everyone that comes into the country under the the international protection system is heavily vetted if you listen to the previous series of podcasts um, that we put out last year in conversation with Lucky Kambula he describes the process that people go through when they're seeking international protection it's incredibly degrading it's a long and drawn out process the the concept that these people are unvetted is just ridiculous it doesn't gel with reality at all but this entire situation is manufactured by the state because they insisted on taking in a large number of Ukrainian refugees and basically created this two-tier 2 uh, system of asylum where asylum seekers come from the Ukraine were given preferential treatment over asylum seekers coming from the Middle East and Africa or anywhere else. They took in something like 40,000, tens of thousands anyway, which is more than they were capable of taking in. And this has resulted in a severe crisis where many asylum seekers come here and are told that they don't have a bed. They don't even have a roof. They have to sleep in tents. Um or they're stuffed into large hotel conference rooms hundreds of men and of course that leads to violence and the right are capitalising this there's loads of videos circulating on the internet constantly of uh, men fighting in these places but and you know that's given as all look. Like, these are violent people that were I- importing into the country as they say the, as far as the right are concerned this is part of a, a conspiracy theory by the world economic forum or the EU to flood Ireland to plant they're talking about a new plantation plantation of Ireland by migrants but just it's a fairly common sense thing if you get a bunch of young men from different cultures who've been through deeply traumatising experiences and you put them all in one big room together where they don't even have a bed so in some cases they're told right that's your chair that's your that's, you don't have a bed there's a chair there you can sleep on like obviously there's going to be tensions and violence in a situation like that it's just obvious there will be um, it doesn't say anything about the moral character of the people that are there I mean you put anyone in that situation people are going to be pissed off um, so so obviously we need to look at the far right but the, the, the far right are simply capitalising on a situation that the government have knowingly created um, and the reason they did it is because for well, loads of different reasons but they want to appear to be the best little boys in Europe so they'll take in all the Ukrainians they're asked to uh, and the result is that they've created this perfect storm of have-nots versus the have-even-lesses and that situation has just intensified over the year although the, the, the far right the fringes of them in general you know while they're capitalising on these anti-migrant protests. They have been making absolute fools of themselves in other ways, pulling various different protest stunts. In particular, the a small group marching into libraries to burn books. Uh, in some cases, they had to bring the book in that they had issued; with. They had to bring it into the library themselves, because the library didn't actually stock it. So they were bringing these books into libraries in order to rip them up and burn them. Um, in a couple of cases, they were actually protected by the guards. When they did this, the guards stood at the door and blocked because there was counter-protesters outside. Um, common thing that the guards marching in lockstep with the far right protecting them where they can Um, there was also an extremely funny scandal over the summer where the national party the national party are probably the most plausible of all the fascist parties in Ireland Um, most plausible in that they have one of the more coherent ones Um, they tend not to focus too much on conspiratorial narratives uh, conspiracy theories Um, and they present themselves you know very clean and clean cut and um but uh, they had a leadership crisis during the summer where there was essentially a coup the new leader ousted the old leader and in the process there was uh, some controversy over bars of gold bullion going missing Four hundred thousand euros worth of gold was taken by the new leadership um no questions were asked about where this gold came from um but you have to be suspicious of that because this is a relatively small party we're talking about they've never Successfully had a candidate elected, so they're not getting any money from the government. You know, if a, a party here gets a candidate elected, they get a certain amount of money from the government to fund the party. The party they don't have any of that kind of funding, so they're entirely privately funded. Um, most fascist parties throughout history have been heavily funded by big capitalists. Uh, it, uh, fascists are the attack dogs of capitalism. Um, so it would be interesting to know where that where that goal came from, um, but. Even though they're, you know, it's easy to make fun of them and they're pretty silly looking. They are probably the party that stand to gain the most from this increase in anti-migrant feeling here in Ireland. Uh, like I said, of all the might, of all the right-wing groupings, they're the most plausible, the most coherent, the most presentable. Their ideologies are the most consistent. Uh, other groups are a bit more all over the place, more conspiratorial. Um, but all in all, so we have to keep an eye on them. But all in all, the the organised right like the National Party, Irish Freedom Party, they're not in that much of a stronger position than they were a year ago. But what they have done quite successfully is spread their talking points among the general population. This talk of the great replacement um, of the new plantation. A lot of that comes from the National Party. Um, So immigration is on the agenda in a big way now. The response of the left has been lacking. Uh, In my view, I think we let ourselves believe that after the protest died down at the start of the year, that the right had kind of gone away um but that isn't the case as the riots late in november showed and more on that in a second there were some practical event uh, interventions throughout the year though uh katu the community action tenants union are continuing to organize tenants throughout the country the rhl the revolutionary housing league have had a number of occupations and the two groups have worked together on occasion as well um, i'm talking about these now because a lot of these issues come back to housing really if we had abundant housing in this country and well-funded social services. Um, the fact that there was an uptick in migration wouldn't have been noticed. The only reason this has been noticed is because of the lack of housing and the tragic state of our public services. So it's an entirely manufactured situation by the state. The state's response to the housing crisis, like I said, has been to underspend on public housing. They've underspent their public housing budget by, I can't remember how much now, by a very large number this year, uh, while massively overspending on the never-ending project, that is, the maternity hospital. And putting billions into greenways which seemed to just involve chopping down trees and closing off public parks um there was an eviction ban in place last year um in the winter 22 23 the state lifted that ban when the winter ended um despite protests claiming that small landlords were free- fleeing the market there was also a moral panic around what they called what the pro-state media called the new homeless which were homeowners coming back from abroad who couldn't get the renters out of their house which is, you know, obviously there are some cases like that, but calling them the new homeless as though that's a significant part of the population and an actual problem is a complete distraction. It's nothing compared to the 13,000 and more homeless people who just don't have any home at all. So the state solution then, as it was again in the last month, is to give tax breaks to small landlords. So groups like cat and the RHL, like I said, are vital and their activity has continued throughout the year. We, I'd love to see an increase in that in 2024, an increase in cooperation between all these groups. Um Back in April, the RHL, Katu, and a number of other groups occupied the Department of Housing. Um, later on, then in the summertime, the RHL occupied a building long term uh, for several months in Berkeley Road in Finsbury. Uh, they used this to house migrants who had been sleeping rough outside the International Protection Office. This happened in response to a migrant encampment being attacked. Uh, like I said, this was a continuation of those those far right, far right led protests that happened earlier in the year. Uh, a camp, an encampment of migrants, was attacked. The camp was ultimately burned down. Thankfully, no one, no one was hurt, um, but a number of the belongings were destroyed. So the RHL occupied this building on Berkeley Road for a number of months to temporarily house them, as the state was failing to do. And the response to Berkeley Road from the state was one of the largest evictions that I, I've ever I've ever witnessed. Um, they shut off. It happened in the middle of the night, around eleven o'clock at night. They shut off the road, uh, as the main thoroughfare in the city um, there was hundreds of gardi. I think there was only four activists left in the building at the time hundreds of gardi to evict four activists using a helicopter several vans and like I said the whole road blocked off uh, that was a significant development because I haven't seen a mobilisation of police like that of that size uh, for an eviction ever in I've never personally witnessed it and as I'll get into later the state seems to be increasing repressive measures here at home In spite of this there has been an uptick in squatting activity in dublin city over the last number of months and hopefully we'll see more of that in 2024 people taking matters into their own hands uh, to take empty buildings uh, whether from the rhl or unaffiliated groups to take empty buildings and put them to use because the state are just simply not responding in any meaningful way to the housing crisis and it's it's leading to Incredible social problems that would people just aren't coping with. Well, we're kind of left with no other choice. Like I said earlier, it's in the in this context, in these because of these tensions that the right are starting to gain traction in a way that they never have before in Ireland. Um, and the response of the left, I think, has been underwhelming. And like the proof of that, if you need it, are the riots that broke out in Dublin one night in November. A man, I think, he was of Algerian descent foreign national anyway clearly having a mental health crisis of some kind attacked some children with a knife uh, three kids and their or one girl in particular this happened in the north inner city of Dublin uh, one young girl, little girl uh, was stabbed and re- repeatedly, thankfully she's out of intensive care now I can't imagine the stress that that, that, that herself and her family must have gone through in that moment but uh, and still are But that that story itself was largely overshadowed by the riots that followed. Essentially a race riot or it started as a a race riot quickly turned into a generalised guard riot and an excuse for looting. But it was instigated by the same right-wing actors that are using their social media platforms throughout the year uh, to whip up anti-migrant sentiment among the people. Those protests had kind of fizzled out. They're still happening throughout the country here and there. Whenever there's a um, a new migrant centre a housing centre for migrants announced there'll be often there's reactions to it locally um but the the bulk of the movements had kind of fizzled out in dublin and there was a lot of self-congratulatory language coming from the revolutionary left from socialists who claimed that our our counter-protests had worked and that that's what had made it all down but there's no evidence really to suggest that the counter protesting actually had any effect on those protests uh protests have a natural life cycle these things sometimes die out of their own accord and slow down of their own accord what we can see from that that night of rioting, that the tensions and the sentiment has not gone away. It's gone a bit quiet, but it's not gone away. It's not clear to me how we're going to address this going forward, but I think protesting isn't enough. We need to be intervening directly in communities, mobilising people before the right get to them. Um, but what's clear is that the state are more than happy to facilitate and allow it to grow. The right are doing their job for them. Um, like I said, they target migrants, they target the left, they don't target the government. Protest outside of Paul Murphy's house, the people for profit TD, never been in government has no responsibility for any of this situation and like I said going to Desi Ellis' office doesn't harm the government in any way, so because these people don't attack those in power, the state are perfectly happy to let that happen um, the state itself is drifting more towards fascism and I'm not saying that to be sensationalist a number of things happened this year that didn't really make the kind of headlines that they should have uh, we've seen an expansion of the surveillance state and um, just a bit of background before you talk about this. In 2022, court found that Ireland's use uh, of citizens' data over the last, the way it's been gathering data from citizens over the last 20 years has been illegal. So some new laws were passed to make that illegal, uh, to clamp down on that. But that law was circumvented this year. Um, Minister for Justice Helen McEntee released a statement saying that there's a threat, didn't say what the threat was, but a threat to Ireland's security for the next 12 months so the state would be able to essentially demand from any citizens internet service provider from their phone company to demand any citizens information without any reason so they can just get from whoever provides your internet your phone company they can seize that information seize that data they don't have to give any reason because of this nameless threat right so they can track basically everything that you do through your phone through your computer through your laptop your smart tv any device that connects to the internet your internet service provider Uh, your your phone company or your service provider retains all the information and all of this information is recorded, which is why there's this overproduction uh, uh, of data centres throughout the world, particularly here in Ireland. Uh, not for anything that benefits us it's for stuff it's not for stuff that we need it's so that these companies can keep storing our data and keep building advertising profiles on us the state can now access any of that information at any time for any reason um, for the next 12 months the minister has not stated what the threat is so we can only speculate but it does make a lot of sense alongside Ireland's increased desire uh, to collaborate with NATO uh, the Taoiseach recently said that uh, like I said Ireland would increase support for Ukraine milit- militarily increase cooperation with NATO and um, they're moving to get rid of the triple lock which keeps uh which is supposed to keep ireland um make it more difficult for Ireland to send troops abroad they're, they've got they're going to get rid of that and that in and of itself is not the most significant thing it's just part of a broader move to undermine irish neutrality um due to i guess the threat of russia the minister for foreign affairs Michal martin held a number of so-called Consultative forums throughout the year, which were essentially propaganda tours, pro NATO propaganda tours. The people on each, uh, who sat on each forum, were almost entirely pro NATO, uh, and it was chaired by the pro imperialist Dame Louise Richardson. So, democratically speaking, they were a complete joke. Poll after poll shows that there's no appetite in Ireland to become less neutral, but the state is moving in that direction in spite of that. The Irish government have been training Ukrainian armed forces. They've also trained soldiers from the IDF, the army that's currently carrying out genocide in Palestine. And like I said, they now want to double down on that, Uh, increase military cooperation with NATO, erode our neutrality, and increase surveillance on its own citizens. Uh, It's no coincidence that the current Guard Commissioner is a former PSNI police chief. So we now, you know, we don't have a United Ireland, but we have an all-Ireland police force. And since the riots happened, uh, the topic of facial recognition software facial recognition technology is back in the news there's no evidence that facial recognition technology actually helps keep people safer uh, scientifically speaking there's no debate about that anymore if you want a safe society what you do is you build social housing and you fund mental health services and um, security doesn't work the UK is one of the most heavily surveilled countries in the world It hasn't impacted on its crime statistics in any meaningful way but the state are now looking at, at this in response to well supposedly in response to the rights. Um, or that's been used as an excuse to bring them back in bring it back on the agenda Um, but also in the middle of the year during the summer Digital Rights Ireland and the Irish Council for Civil Liberties released a report based on freedom of of information requests into the Department of Social Protection the Department of Social Protection uh, had issued public services cards over the last couple of years um, and they had been accused of gathering of illegally gathering biometric data and illegally holding this information and sharing the information among departments they claimed back in December 2022, that they didn't hold do this, but then in April, uh, the Minister admitted that that was actually necessary. This uh, investigation by the ICCL showed that the DSP knew about it all along. So we're seeing increased evidence of the growth of the surveillance state and the consolidation of the surveillance state. So that's what we're looking at, a country that is just generally increasing surveillance on its citizens, uh, illegally gathering information, and now they can seize our digital information whenever they want. There's also been reports over the last number of months that the Guards will be increasing surveillance on left-wing groups. In a time of increased right-wing political violence and agitation, the Guards will be shifting focus to the left to increase their policing of so-called dissident Republican groups and their connections to groups such as Hezbollah and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, who are a Marxist-Leninist Palestinian resistance group. Uh, One of the groups taking part in the current resistance, and of course Hezbollah are also allied to the Palestinian resistance. There was a report recently that the guards would be looking more into the connections between the PFLP and Hezbollah to Ireland, um, including tracking money sent by charitable groups from Ireland to Palestine. Earlier on in the year, the guardy continued their. I mean, the, the guards were essentially set up as an anti-republican police force, so they've never never really let up on the repression of republican groups. But I think it was around April or May this year, homes of uh, anti-imperialist action activists were raided, uh, and number of their personal belongings were seized. They were arrested, in one case the partner of the activist was arrested. They were released without any charge, it was just open harassment. Uh, AIA have publicly stated their support for the PFLP and vice versa, and it's likely that such repressive actions will step up now that the police of the Gardaí have made it uh, explicit policy to investigate connections between Irish groups and Palestinian groups. Uh, Just recently, an attempt by the Workers' Party to send money to a Palestinian charity was blocked by Western Union, and I have to assume that the basis for that was that the Workers' Party uh, is linked to to the DFLP. The DFLP are a splinter group from the PFLP, you know, typical lefty stuff, split over ideological differences. Um, They're a smaller group, Uh, similar enough politically though. The Workers' Party and the DFLP, I don't know how linked they are, but I know they have held online meetings together. I watched one recently where the Workers' Party were interviewing a member of the DFLP. So I have to assume that there's a link there between them you know, openly supporting the DFLP and not being allowed to send money to this charity to the Palestinians in their time of most dire need. Right, so I've been talking for well over an hour now. Um, There's a lot more I wanted to cover, in particular events in Latin America, uh, the election of a proto-fascist in Argentina and the ongoing people's struggles in Colombia and Peru, but this has been going on for long enough now, so I'll wrap up. Um, What are we looking at in Ireland this year, for the coming year? A government that's doubling down on its commitment to being an imperial slapdog that wants to integrate Ireland into the imperialist military bloc that is NATO, that refuses to dissent in the face of genocide, that aims to facilitate American capital accessing the European market, regardless of the destruction caused to the Irish environment and its people. A state with increased repressive powers and surveillance abilities, a police force with more weapons and greater powers, a growing far-right movement seeking to scapegoat migrants and minority groups, an intensifying housing crisis and diminishing public services. So we need to get more active double our efforts if you're not already active find a progressive political organisation that makes sense to you that you feel at home with and get active the two richest men in the country now own more wealth than the poorest 50% and it does not have to be this way I'll leave it at that for now if you have any questions about what was covered in this episode or if you think there's anything important that I missed out on or if you have any suggestions for what I should cover in the coming year on the podcast for people I should interview please get in touch at turningearthradio at gmail.com or find find the podcast on instagram and if you can afford to do so please subscribe to patreon and help me keep the podcast going that's patreon.com forward slash turning earth slongafo